Welcome to Season 4 of Game Design Unboxed on the No Direction Network. Danielle Reynolds talks to tabletop game designers about the games they've made. Together, they unbox how the game went from inspiration to publication. Proudly sponsored by All Play. If you're looking for a board game table, bag, playmat, or great board games, check them out at letsallplay.com. This episode of Game Design Unbox is sponsored by Launch Tabletop. Launch Tabletop is an online platform for board game creators to manufacture retail quality board games at all scales, even a single copy. Launch Tabletop is offering 20% off your next order by going to launchtabletop.com and using promo code GDU20 when checking out using their print-on-demand service, Launch Lab. Launch your next game project into the stratosphere with retail quality games at no minimums with Launch Tabletop today. Thank you for joining me, Danielle, for Game Design Unbox Inspiration to Publication, Episode 76, Dark Domains. Today, we are joined by Jeff Hoger, designer of Thunder Alley, Seas of Thunder, Grand Prix, Apocalypse Road, Maneuver, 20th Century Limited, Orient Express, Fast and Furious, Full Throttle, and of course, our Spotlight Domain. Oh my God, have you worked on a lot of things, Jeff? Well, it's been a long time, but yeah. That is fair. Well, then tell everybody who doesn't know you, how did you get into game design? Well, I started when I was very young in junior high school. We started designing games, but I never really thought about doing it professionally or published wise until right around the year 2000. Our game group came up with an idea for a maneuver and we started working on that. Eventually that took off. We finished it up and that's basically how I got started. I got started in war games. That is such an interesting start. No offense. I feel like it's so much easier to be like, I'm going to make a small party game or a little card game or a trick taker, but a war game? Well, it was a simple war game in my defense. <laughs> it was very easy to play, sort of like chess with dice and cards. Fair enough. Then let's scoot over to Dark Domains, our spotlight. Where did the inspiration for this game come from? Well, after I did Maneuver... And that was me and a group of friends, the guys we play games with. My wife decided that probably she should start playing these games with us too, or she was never going to see me. So after a certain amount of time, the two of us began joining forces designing. And she was a, uh, oh, she was more, this doesn't work in a game. I would like put a bunch of stuff in. She would take a bunch of stuff out, tell me how things weren't working the way they should. Uh, things were too complicated. So we got together and we did probably our, I, one of our two best games was Thunder Alley. That was the first one we worked on together, the stock car racing game. And when we were done with that, I was driving home with her from our game club meeting. And I asked her if she had anything that she wanted to work on, because most of the times I picked the game, you know, I picked the topics and start working on them. And then she would follow along with me and help me get it designed. Well, she said, I'd lo I want a game with skulls and tarot cards. And that was where it came from. I had to figure out a way to put skulls and tarot cards into a game and make it interesting. Okay. All right. So then why skulls and tarot cards specifically? Honestly, I, I, I'm not exactly sure where the tarot cards came from, but definitely the skulls. She's a big collector of skulls. She likes art with skulls in it. That was not surprising. She's very much into that aesthetic. So we have skulls in the bedroom, skulls in the living room. We have skulls all around as far as I can see. All right, fair enough. Well, then, for anyone who hasn't played Dark Domains, mind explaining how the game plays? Sure. I'll give a thematic overview first. So the game is about being a follower of the necromancer, the evilest guy in the land, but you don't want anybody to know that you're 
the follower, the necromancer. So you start off by going off into the wilderness to create your brand new domain. And you're going to do that for the city of Harrow's. But in the meantime, you are trying to turn your buildings to dark, get monsters, hire henchmen, do, you know, do bad things because you're really the bad guy in the situation. So essentially you're the, the bad guy in a Dungeons and Dragons campaign. The game itself is played by worker placement for the most part. So it's played in phases. You have worker placement. It's similar to, it's kind of a little similar to Stone Age or Lords of Waterdeep. And I probably, we probably could have made it flow just a little bit better if those games actually would have been out when we designed it. (laughs) But this, the design of this predates that. So we were sort of going on our own. So instead of just having like the free flow of those games, well, it is a lot like Lords of Waterdeep because after you put your guy down, then it, it resolves. This one does the same thing. You have to put all your guys out, then it resolves along a path instead of just putting your guy down and doing whatever action immediately is right there. And the game is two to five players, correct? It is. We are working right now on making the two-player game a little more tight. We thought it was pretty good, but we've had some people on the Kickstarter campaign that we just finished recently had some ideas for improving the two-player version in the game, so we're going to be working on that a little bit. But yeah, it goes two to five. Very cool. And so since the Kickstarter that just wrapped up was for the second edition of the game, what is different between the first and the second? Well, one big thing is we forgot a rule in this first edition. Um, We had it in two places in the rule book, and through the miracle of editing, we managed to edit it out of both places. And it was a fairly important rule where when you turned a building to dark, you could immediately populate it with a monster that you had as his lair. And so people were not able to move their their monsters to defend their flipped over building. It was important enough that we needed to change it. And once we decided to change it, we decided, well, let's use the fact that we now have thousands of people playing the game and they're all more than willing to give me their feedback on what's wrong with it. Let's go ahead and fix as much of the little stuff as we could. Turns out there was a lot of little stuff, but nothing big. So the changes to gameplay aren't massive. But the biggest changes are we ended up cutting down a lot of the components because post-pandemic, everything costs more than it did. And if we had stuck with the game being the same same component, it would have been, in my opinion, a too expensive game to produce. So we ended up cutting out a lot of of components. No opponents, just a lot of components. Yeah. That streamlined the game. So we have fewer spell cards, but we found a way to make it actually more interesting to play the spells because we had fewer spell cards to deal with. We took away sheet after sheet after sheet of these tokens that we had for everything from stone to workers to wood to fire and water. We replaced those all with a tracker map that's going to be dual layer so your pieces like sit in the little holes. So it'll be a nice, it's nice and it makes the game go play a lot faster. Okay. From your initial concept of, hey, take skulls and tarot cards, make a worker placement game. Like what were the kinds of changes in development things that you did while working on it? There, there were many and varied. I and my wife, now that she works with me, the two of us, we don't sit and plan out how things are going to work really with games. We sort of fly by the seat of our pants. So we'll try something. We'll get the play test group together. We'll play it. We'll find out what's wrong with it. Next time we come back, it'll be different. Next time we come back, it'll be different. And we just keep iterating one on top of the other. We believe in the iterative game design 
And there's no way I think I could, I would have the patience or the foresight even to lay out how I think the game's going to play before I've even started, you know, building the first component. So we made many, many changes. At first, I, we didn't even have any idea how the game would work. And if I went back and looked at, which I have, I've gone back and looked at the original first year or so of the files, I don't even recognize the game that is on there because it was a completely different game. It wasn't even about what it's about now. What do you think of the design that you've now kept through like cutting down components is the best part of this game? That's something I hadn't thought about what the best part of the game is. I think the best part of the game is the satisfaction. The, well, I don't want to say satisfaction because that makes me sound kind of evil, but it's that that revealing of the dark side. And when you start flipping your buildings and you start actually gaining points, because the first half of the game, you, you're not really gaining any points. You're not doing anything that's going to win you the game. You're, for the most part, making resources, making money to buy resources. You're doing all the good stuff, but that doesn't get you any of the points. So I think that moment where things flip over and you start going to the dark side and everybody who's never played before starts realizing, oh, wait a minute, that's what I need to do. I've been playing this game like it's a, a production game or a, an engine building game, but I am completely building the wrong engine. And I love watching people in their first play just say, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. Okay, let's do this now. Do you remember what the responses were in the initial playtesting of once you kind of solidified most of the bones of this game? Uh, yes, I do. I remember. I remember quite vividly that People loved it and said, you'll never be able to get it published. Nobody wants to publish this thing. Because this was around 2011, 2012. They didn't even have things like, at the time, we hadn't even seen Dungeon Lords come out yet when we first designed it. So it's been a long, a long path getting it out to people. And it was sort of the reason why we ended up publishing stuff ourselves. This was one of the two reasons. Because we really didn't think anybody at the time was going to be interested in having a game where you're the bad guy. Okay. And so what's made you decide to do a second edition now? Uh, well, the second edition now we wanted, we only made 2,500 copies of the first edition. So because of that, there was only a limited number of people who were going to be available to get the expansion. And if we wanted to sell the expansion, we probably needed to increase the, the base of people who had the base game. So we decided that if we were going to go ahead and put the expansion out, we would put a secondary version a second edition of the base game out at the same time and since we're working with keith at l4 studios now he's sort of an ally of ours and that goes through the mr b brand we had the ability to leverage them and their knowledge and their contacts and and printing and stuff the first game around we were it was our first time doing anything we were a small company we sort of suffered small company issues and we didn't have so many of them this time around that's so awesome that you have that new partner then. Yeah, he's been great. So when you were first working on the game, walk me through like what an actual player's turn looks like. Okay, so a player's turn is really tied to the game turn because the game's segmented into phases. And each phase, everybody does certain things. So there's a fortune phase, which is the tarot card phase. You would turn up two tarot cards depending on how they match each other. We kind of like that. I don't know if you're familiar with tarot. I'm not super familiar. I did a lot of research. I did a lot of research back in the day when I was coming up with the game and what they meant. So I probably know more then than I do now about it. But if things were upside down, 
then they would have different meanings. So what we did was we tied it to the suits. If the two cards have different suits, generally something bad happens. If the two cards have the same suit, something good happens. And the Arcana cards are sort of just wild. And so we have that first phase where you find out what the events for the turn are. And everybody just sort of sits through that. Then we have a preparation phase, which is generally where people can attack each other and do, you know, burn down other people's buildings, try and, you know, try and do bad things. Uh, That's where a lot of the spells and the henchmen come in. And that goes around the table in player order. Everything goes in player order, so I'm not going to keep saying that, but it just goes in whoever has the first player marker starts and it just goes around. Okay. So after you've had preparation phase, you put out your minions. And those are the worker spaces on the board. And for something like the Lotus District, which just came out, there's a sideboard. So, And you can also put the minions on your board to flip over your buildings from the light side to the dark side. So everybody puts their minions out, and then they resolve it along the path. So every spot gets gets resolved, and there's a certain pathway that they all have to get, get resolved. You can get spells. You can get more elements. You can buy stuff to build your buildings. You can buy building plans if you want to say that from the architects guild you just do all kind all the different kind of stuff hire more henchmen then once everybody's resolved their minions everybody has a chance to build their new buildings so if you have all the stuff you need to build a building you just took or one you've had previously you can put it into your domain which is a four by four grid so you can have up to 16 buildings in your domain and you build them light side up because you're a good guy to start with and eventually your idea is you're going to want to flip them over to the dark side where they start making evil instead of just making money. After everybody's done that, then these pesky adventurers come out. They're the good guys, but we don't like them. And they're going to come and they have directions on their cards to tell you who, you know, what building they're going to go for or what monster they're going to go for. And they're going to come out and they're going to do their attacks on two different buildings or maybe two of the same buildings, depending on how, it's, how it works out. And if you can hold them off, you gain evil. And if you lose, your building gets flipped back to the light side. Then when that's done, everybody produces, and that's all done. Nobody interacts during the production phase with any other player. You just make the stuff that your buildings produce, and you make the stuff your spells produce, and your henchmen produce, and it's really free form, so you can do it however is best for you. So you can create a monster, and then that monster can make evil, and you can spend that evil to make whatever you need if, if, it makes some, if you have some way to convert it. So everybody has that phase, and then there's a cleanup phase at the end where there's another chance for you to affect other players and just put everything back together for the next round. And the game goes somewhere between six and eight rounds, depending on when the death card comes up in the deck. And how is the death card layered into the deck? The death card is in the bottom five. So there's the top five cards of the deck are called the Masquerade part, and they mostly affect cards that are on their light side. Helping buildings that are on the light side, giving you money, giving you resources, giving you more workers. Then there is a revelation deck, which is five more cards that are underneath those first five. And somewhere in that second set of five, there's a card called the world. And when the world comes up, everybody has to flip two of their buildings from light to dark. And that's when everybody says, oh, okay, so we have to flip them to dark. And this is where we're going to actually score our points. And then everybody's sort of all in on the, well, now I need monsters. Now I need now I need to worry about the adventurers because when the adventurers come to your light buildings and if they end up getting directed there, they're just like happy to give you money and say, you know, good job. Everything's great for the light. But, you know, when stuff starts going dark, that's when they get a little frisky. Then on the bottom five cards of the deck, we call it the decay deck. Those are all cards that are based on having dark buildings and 
they're kind of like the worst, the most evil effects come in on those bottom five cards. And somewhere in those bottom five cards is death. And when you, when everybody, when the players die or when death comes up, that's when they're either whoever has the most evil gets taken by the necromancer or not. Being taken is a good thing since you're bad guys. It is. It is. That's, that's what, that's what you're after. You're trying to be the person with the, uh, who's going to have the undead life, you know, the undead, the undead lich life. Okay. Very interesting. That's cool. Why did you choose Necromancer, by the way? I'll be honest with you. I have to guess on this because a lot of this stuff came from our Dungeons and Dragons campaign that we were playing simultaneous with the design of this game. And a lot of stuff just bled over because it was a homebrew version. So, you know, I was free to, if I needed something, I would just take it from our campaign. And if I wanted to see how something played out and how people liked it, I would just stick it in the campaign. And we would, you know, play our Dungeons and Dragons session. If people thought it was cool, then I might use it in the game. Or if I was using it in the game and I needed to find out what people thought about it, I would put it in the campaign. So a lot of the stuff I'm pretty sure, and I'm pretty sure the Necromancer was just the big bad guy in our campaign. Interesting. Yeah, I just find it fascinating because I always like the Greek mythology of Asclepius and how he was the first necromancer. He was the Greek god of healing and son of Apollo, but he was the one that first pushed it a little too far and just started bringing people from the death. Yeah. So I'm a fan of the necromancer archetype, but wasn't sure where you got it from. Yep, that's that's him. He uh, It's not exactly that, but it's the same type of thing. He was an old emperor that sort of just came back and decided he wasn't going to die. and. Yeah, not nearly as mythologic as that. No worries. I'm a huge myth fan, so was interested. But that's cool that you use Dungeons and Dragons in the campaign that you're playing with your friends to actually help you decide on like what characters to play and like what monsters and stuff to put into your own game. Yeah, it was it was fun. It made you know makes people happy to see the characters that you know that they that they sort of breathe life into are now part of this game, and it's just a little something cool I can do for the guys who do a lot of playtesting. Did you have a hard time when you were chopping down on the different cards then? Yes and no. The biggest part, the biggest problem was we ended up not naming all the adventurers. So originally all the adventurers were the names of the the different player characters from years of campaigning. And we decided just to call them Rogue, Wizard, because we ended up with one piece of art for each adventurer. And it didn't make any sense to have a whole bunch of different names. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, it's exactly, it makes sense, but I'm still a little bit disappointed. Yeah. In total for the initial design and printing, how long do you think it took from inspiration to publication of the game? I'm going to say nine years from around 2010. My first files are early 2011, so we probably came up with the idea around 2010 and just couldn't. I know there was a period of time where we were just washing around skulls and tarot cards, skulls and tarot cards, and nothing was making sense. So I know the original files go back to January of 2011. And we finally sent the game to China for printing in the spring of 2019. And so for the tarot cards, was it mostly just the different orientation of the card that you took from? Or do you actually include things like the wand, the tower, and all of the different um, typical tarot card names? Yes, we have pentacles, wands, staves, and cups. And then we have, and we have the arcana. And we, I did a lot of research on what the different cards meant, what they meant upside down. And I mean, I, if you know anything about tarot cards, you know, there's, you know, you can go to a number of different places and get a number of different answers. So I sort of synthesized the best ones for the game. And so like, 
maybe the I'm just going to make this up because I don't remember, but like say the the five of pentacles meant good fortune or something. Well, that card, if it's on the positive side, if it's on you know matching side or it matches the arcana, it's probably going to give you money or something. And if it's on the other side, it's probably going to take money away. So I did that for every one of the cards and I even have gone through. So we have some expansion cards too. And we have some promo cards that we've done every year. We have, we have our fans that are sort of like, it's, it's kind of like a Patreon, but not really where it's, we call them lab rats. And there are sort of devoted followers where every year we send them a gift pack of little, you know, four or five cards, six cards. Maybe it'll be a wooden piece or something, you know, some little small, just token for them. And we've started finding some of the, some of the otter tarot cards like the void and the universe and Gaia, things like that, that aren't, aren't in the standard deck, but people have made up or they have like alternate uses. So we started doing those just to make extra cards for more variability. That's so cool. And so how did the Kickstarter on the second edition, how was that received? I think it was received pretty well. We sold a lot, I'll be honest with you, we sold a lot more expansions than we thought we would. So a lot of the people who originally had the game led the way on that Kickstarter with a lot of small orders, but a lot of people backed it for the, we have sort of an update kit where some of the cards we didn't like the way they, they did, or some of the henchmen weren't really used as much as we thought they would be. So people who have the first edition can buy this update kit and it just adds, it replaces a handful of cards and gives them a new set of rules. And then the expansion, and we sold a lot of the expan- a lot more of the expansions than I thought we would. No, that's really cool. Especially, yeah, I'm a huge fan of when people do update kits when there's not that big of changes to the initial game because buying a whole new game, especially if it's like 50, 60 or whatever, like higher price point, kind of sucks. <laughs> well, yeah, and I, my wife and I don't, you know, we're not, we're not what anybody would call well off. Um, we're both on disability, so it's, you know, it's kind of a tough life. So I'm always thinking, I always just assume everybody we're selling to is in the same situation we are. I mean, thank God everybody's not. But if I assume that everybody just has trouble paying their bills, then I try and keep it so they don't have to, you know, so they're not spending an arm and a leg. And I thought it would be, I just thought it would be shady to, well, we have the second edition and I know you bought the first edition, but if you want the new stuff, you have to buy a whole new game. When we basically for $9 were able to replace all the parts that, that needed to be replaced. No, that's awesome. I think that's amazing that you consider that when designing. I feel like a lot of designers, especially for heavier like games, they're just like, put more things in, put more things in, make it like more extreme, make it heavier, make it this. And it's just like, but it doesn't necessarily need that. So that's awesome. Well, and that's also part of the benefit. I'm going to say it's the benefit of having worked freelance for other companies for quite a while is you put something in the game and they'll say, we can't afford that. You can't have that. So find out a way to make the game just as good as it was, but you can't have those pieces. And GMT is really good at that, where they're like, no, we, we're not having a $200 game. You're going to figure out how to, you know, you'll figure out how to make this without doing all those parts. And I learned that skill. And that, it is a skill. You have to learn how and you have to be, you know, you have to find ways to get around the things you think you need. And it turns out you don't always need all the stuff you think you need. Very true. And I'm sure you've become a much better designer since the initial printing. I hope so. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, all right. Between now and then in the first and second printing, what was your favorite and least favorite experience in the journey of this design? Journey of this design between the two. 
okay, my favorite experience is pretty easy. It was being at Origins in 2019 and seeing people playing the game on the table without me being around to tell them to play the game. It was uh, it was pretty cool. And that's not the first time we've had that. But as far as for Dark Domains, that was that was probably the highlight. Seeing people and seeing it on multiple tables on the same night was was pretty fun. So I enjoy that. Um, the down parts of it, I think when we realized that we missed that rule, it just, ugh, I hated that. Because it, was, it wasn't an end the game type of rule. It wasn't like something where yeah. people can't do it. People end up, just what they do is they buy their building, they flip their buildings to dark first, and then they would buy a monster and put it in the building, which you can do. But it's just like, oh, it should be so much easier than this. You know, you should be able to buy a monster and stick it off in the woods and when you flip a building it just comes and it joins you know it joins the building and i think that was my worst part when i got the rule book and people when i was i was explaining it and somebody said well i don't see that in the rules and i'm like well it's it's right well no it's it oh it's mm-hmm. it's not in here <laughs> take my word for it it's a rule interesting so then what did you do back then did you like send out a sheet of paper into the mail and go like hey every backer for this game here's a rule we missed or like how did you address it I didn't because honestly the game played fine and if they didn't know about it I did put on board game geek like a little thing I I put a form in the board game geek form hey I missed this rule sorry about that it's going to be easier for you if you play with play with it than don't play play with it but in the end I realized it wasn't as crushing as I thought it was cuz people were playing it and they were oh no I just buy the building first and then I put the monster on it never even thought about you know, people say, well, if, you know, I guess if that's the way you play the game and learn it, then you learn to do it that way. You're trained to do it that way. So it was, I think it was more of a big deal to me than it was to anybody else. Okay. I mean, that's not the worst then. Right. Okay. Well then if you could offer one piece of advice to newer designers from what you learned from your experience of this and any other designs you've worked on, what would it be? I would say, make sure you work with somebody who has experience developing thing, developing games. Don't try and do it on your own and don't try and do everything on your own. It's it's not as easy as it seems. And there's going to be things that you're going to miss that somebody who's been doing this longer than you is going to catch immediately. And they're going to save you a lot of time and a lot of effort. And that's one of the things I've actually been doing a lot of since 2015 or so is I've tried to be tried to develop games and I've helped develop games for people like Rio Grande and stuff like that. Because I think it's important to have development, not just design, not just publishing, but there needs to be that person in between that gives you advice, lets you bounce things off of, and will tell you when you're screwing up. I would definitely agree because I'm a huge fan of either using co-designers or developers. Honestly, personally, both can also be helpful because you're going to miss things. And rulebook editors, that's a good thing to add in there too. (laughs) That is a good add. Yes, those are all good to have. Um, I've done a lot of stuff with co-designers, so. I feel like you just get so in the weeds and you just happen to miss something or like you get stuck on things sometimes and you almost need someone to break ties and developers are really good at doing that. (laughs) Yep. That's so funny. And okay, so you just had this game on Kickstarter. Do you have any other games that fans should be looking out for in the future? We have many, many games (laughs) that people should be looking out for in the future. Uh, Just a little quick aside is we, my wife and I, we, make a lot of games we have about 16 right now that are sort of backed up in the queue awesome and 
we get some of them out through GMT. We just did Seas of Thunder just came out earlier earlier this year through GMT. So we have like an outlet for our war games, which is nice. But we don't really have, didn't really have an outlet for our games because as I've mentioned before, my wife and I are not extremely well off. So there's not a lot of capital sitting around here at Laboratory H waiting to be used. But what we've done is we met Sean Brown from Mr. B Games at a convention, well, probably 10 years ago now. And he introduced us to Richard Launius. And through him, we met Keith Bloom, who runs L4 Studios. Well, we got off really well with, with Keith. And turns out Keith has capital and he has knowledge and he's worked for Eagle Griffin. And he has lots of skills and knowledge in different parts of the industry. But he didn't really have any games. He doesn't have time to design games. And he just would sort of get get other games that maybe Sean wasn't producing through Mr. B or however he came across it. So we sort of teamed up together and said, Hey, we've got games and you've got this skill and ability and, and the backing. Why don't we team up together and we'll, we'll make games. So we have, well, we have a game called legendary cities, New York that we're going to be coming out with soon. And it's um, a Richard Berg game that he signed a contract with us before he passed away a few years ago. And we've been working on getting it modernized and publishing ready. And we just came out with Lords of Baseball, which is a, a game about running a baseball team, not playing baseball games. I was thinking Lords of Waterdeep, but baseball, but okay. <laughs> a little bit, a little bit, but no, not really. It's like I said, it's a game about running a baseball team in the 1910s. But you don't really have to know or like baseball to be able to play it. It's more of an economic and uh, engine building game. We also have um, some smaller games. We have uh, Perspective of Mirrors, which is really cool. The game is about spies and spying, and it all depends on which side of the table you're sitting at. It's which way you're looking at the board. You have a different perspective, so different things are important to you. And that's a game by William Baldwin that is going to be coming out either this year or next. And we also have a game by Larry Bogucki. Um, Shadows of the Necromancer. So as you can see, I for a, a while there, I started doing a lot more developing than designing. I'm back sort of designing now, but right now we have a lot of games to get out that I didn't design, but that I've helped get to the finish line. Carla and I have both helped get it to the finish line. That is really awesome, especially that you're working on so many different projects at once. I feel like I'm one of few people I know that does that. <laughs> I can't work on just one thing at a time. I I had five things. I had five games I was working on today at different stages of them. Uh, okay. Yeah, no, I'm very much the same. I like to bounce around. I get, not to say I get bored, but like I need a break. If I have to focus on one thing for too long, I feel like I'm just hitting my head against a wall if I get stuck on something and I'd rather be more productive on something else versus unproductive being stuck on a single project. Yeah, that's, that's one way I like to look at it. The other way is I, I do get bored. I can only work on one thing for so long and it's this is the perfect industry for me because if I want to work on a game about trains in South America I can do that and then I can get up and I can have a sandwich and I can come back and work on you know the latest update on the necromancer and what you know his next expansion is and it's just never-ending cycles of different things you can learn about and study and research and design yeah so then for my last question, if you could have been the designer of any game that you didn't design, what would it have been? I will say it is my all-time favorite game called Age of Renaissance. I would have liked to have designed it and made it just a little bit different, a little bit easier. Okay. I think you're actually the first person to say that they would want to make a game, but also change it. 
<laughs> That's funny. I love the game. It's it is my all time favorite game. I will play it anytime somebody suggests it. But there's just a few parts to it that time has not been kind to. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I could see that. I feel like there's a decent amount of games. I honestly still house rule Catan, to be honest. Okay. That's just me. And I know probably some people will be mad that I do that. <laughs> <laughs> I house rule everything. There you go. See, I even house rule one of my own designs because I didn't like what the developer did. But eh. oh, hey, I did that. I've done that too. I did that with Fast and Furious. They switched the way it played on me and we didn't like it. So we just house ruled it back to the way it was. Amazing. That's so funny. Did you actually post something about it or do you just do it in your own house? I posted something about it. It's not that hard. You just need a lot of dice. Okay. Gotcha. Well, thanks, Jeff, for being on the show. And thanks to everyone who is listening to this episode of Game Design Unboxed, Inspiration to Publication, Episode 67, Dark Domains. And also, where, if anyone's looking for you online, can you be found, Jeff? You can email me, jeff at laboratoryh.com. We have a website, laboratoryh.com. I'm going to have to figure out how that works because I'm taking over running it. So I guess I'll have to learn how everything gets taken care of there. If they are interested in Dark Domains and they missed it, they can still go to the uh, Dark Domains Kickstarter page, or they will be able to by the time this comes out, and just join the pledge manager from there. Awesome. And then for me, I'm your host, Danielle Reynolds. If you're looking to find me on social media, you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky under the name Token Gamer, and that's spelled G-A-Y-M-E-R. But once again, Jeff, thanks for being on the show. All right. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for joining Danielle for another episode of Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication. If you'd like to hear more great gaming podcasts, check out nodirectionpodcast.com. And if you're looking for a great board game, bag, playmat, or gaming table, check out All Play at letsallplay.com. Join us next time.